Very good. Well, it's lovely to be here. Oh, gosh, I'm just going to make this day all sized. <laughs> Go down a little bit. Lovely to be here. Greetings, love from uh, everyone in Oxted. And uh, so good, as always, to partner with you in the gospel uh, in terms of new ground and new frontiers and all that kind of stuff. Didn't know if you uh, saw the numbers for Ashburnham. I can't really stand here and give you, uh, without giving you a slight Ashburnham plug. So this time, uh, well done, thanks Adam. Uh, so this time, two years ago, Ashburnham 2015, uh, at the end of the first cutoff, the end of January, we had 500 people uh, signed in. We ended up with 2,000. So this year, we were interested to see uh, what our numbers would be. And at the end of uh, January, they were 1,200. Yeah, we said that. Oh, wow. So uh, uh, like us, like you, we camped on the North Lawn last time. Uh, so we kind of know the challenges of that particular lawn, but we've put a lot of money. No, it's a lawn. It's a lawn now. We've put, it's a lawn now. It was a field last time. We turned the field into a lawn. No, no, we didn't last time, but we did this time. So we've, yeah, yeah. I'm on sticky ground already. Look, 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 just forgive, forgive, forgive. We were there as well. I have said to our infrastructure guy, everyone on the north lawn should be, should be on the south lawn this time. But I can't promise it because it just depends how the numbers fall. But, but I, well, hey, look, Uncle Dale's looking out for you. Don't worry, you know, just don't, don't go too hard on me. So, um, yeah, there we go. But we put a lot of money into that uh, lovely north lawn. And... Uh, Toilets and, you know, all that malarkey and lights. And we've actually got it, uh, what's the word? Mode. That's the word, that's it, mode. <laughs> so uh, that will help. So there we go. So that's good. Uh, I love your new, uh, the way you're doing it, Sunday morning now. I haven't preached here Sunday morning before we used to look that way. And I've been over here since, but not on a Sunday morning. And so that's really, I, I love this, love this setup at the front. I got slightly caught out this morning, I must be honest. I came in, got a drink, got some bits and pieces, was well, must go to Lou, walk down the stairs, thinking about your new, you know, changes and your whizzy lights and all that lot. Walked into the gents' Lou. This is true, by the way. Walked into the gents' Lou, opened the door, walked in, assumed that there would be a sensor light. <laughs> walked up, walked up to the urinal. La, 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 not a problem. The old light will come on. No, maybe it won't then. Got my phone out, back to the light. Where's the switch? Turn it. I must be honest. I was praying between the urinal and the light switch that no one would come in. I'm wondering, what is this guy doing, walking in the dark, back to the light? Would I have left? Would I have turned around and gone to the loo? I don't know what I would have done. But the Lord saved me. I'm here to preach this morning, so I'd really better get on with it. Some of the um, words that were given during the worship time, which was great, uh, great worship time, so thanks so much. A band for leading us in that and everybody who, who contributed. But a number of the words that people brought and some phrases really stuck with me and uh, kind of come out in the preach. So that's always helpful for a preacher. And you kind of get the sense, well, maybe God's on this. So um, that was good. I'll pick those things up as we go through. Let me pray and then I'll start. Lord Jesus, we do want to bless you. We do honor you. We do acknowledge again that everything good that we have in our lives comes from you. It's all at your hand. The next breath we take is a gift from you. And so we pray this morning, we ask you, Holy Spirit, would you open up our eyes, open up our ears, open up our hearts, 
that we might hear what you want to say to us individually and corporately through your word this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to read out Bible verse for you this morning, and that's going to be John 3, 14 to 15. And I think your wonderful tech guys, there you go, um, I've got it up on the screen. And then a little bit later on, we're going to have a look at Numbers 21. So if you're kind of flicking through your Bibles or getting your phones or whatever else you use, John 3, 14 to 15, and then a little bit later on, we're going to be flicking to Numbers 21, verse 4. Of course, the funny thing about John 3, 14 to 15 is that it comes before John 3, 16. You know, the most famous verse in the Bible. But this is what the most, two most, you know, the two verses before the most famous verse in the Bible says. Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. This is Jesus speaking, and when he says the Son of Man, he's just referring to himself. So in essence, Jesus is saying, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so I must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in me may have eternal life. This morning, I really want to just look at these two very simple verses under three headings. Firstly, what's all this about Moses, snakes, wilderness? What's that about? Secondly, what does Jesus mean when he says about him being lifted up? And how does that relate to Moses' snake's wilderness? And then thirdly, how on earth do those two things get put together and somehow relate to people's eternal life? That's really what we want to look at this morning. If you've heard me preach before, you'll know there'll be nothing too complicated to follow in this. I like the simple truth because I'm a simple man. So point one, Moses lifting up the snake in the wilderness or in the desert, depends on which translation you have. See, Jesus starts just as... Just as, which means that there must be something that we can learn from Moses, the snake, the wilderness incident, which is somehow connected, somehow helps us to understand what he's going to go on to say about him being lifted up and eternal life. These are not unconnected events. One helps to explain or describe or helps us to get our head around the other. And so just because Jesus says just as, we need to understand, okay, we need to understand the one to really fully understand the other. So let's have a little look at this incident that Jesus refers to. We find it in Numbers 21, verse 4 to 9, and this is what it says. Well done, boys. They travelled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses. And they said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread. There's no water. They might have said, there's no cake, Adam. And we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent a venomous snake among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, we've sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. 
Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. So let's just make sure we got our head around this story. The people, God's people, are traveling along a route and it's slightly out of their way. They're having to go around Edom because Edom had a large and powerful army. And Moses decided that in this case, uh, discretion was the better part of valor. They would go round Edom rather than engage them in war. However, the people, it says, get impatient. And they start speaking against God. They start speaking against Moses. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? Why are we going to die in the desert? We have no bread. We have no water. We hate the food that we have. And God sends poisonous snakes among them. And the snakes start biting people, which is what snakes do. And they start dying. And this is not funny, really. This is pretty serious. And the people come to their senses and they admit to Moses, we've sinned against you, we've sinned against God, we ask your forgiveness, we ask God's forgiveness. And they plead with Moses to pray to God, ask him to take away these snakes. That's exactly what Moses does. And God tells Moses, make a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. And anyone who's bitten can look at it and they'll be healed and they won't die. And Moses does that and the people who are bitten look at the pole. And God heals them. Now, I don't know about you, but in some ways, my instant reaction to this is that it's a bit of a funny old story. Really. I mean, snakes biting people, get God getting them to look at a bronze snake to be healed. But for the Israelites, you know, this was a moment of life and death. I don't think this was funny for them. And somehow, and for some reason, Jesus compares and links this incident to him being lifted up on the cross and to eternal life. So I figure there must be something here that we can learn. So why don't we just dig a little bit deeper and understand what's going on. See, we've got to remember, God has freed his people, the Israelites, from slavery in Egypt. In Egypt, they were oppressed. They were mistreated. They were abused. They were slaves serving their Egyptian masters. They had no rights. They had no freedom, no prospects. They were in slavery And they cried out to God to rescue them. And that's exactly what God had done. He'd sent plagues in Egypt. He'd parted the Red Sea. He'd killed the Egyptian army. And so their complaint about why did you bring us out of Egypt is crazy. He brought them out of Egypt because they'd been crying out to him to bring them out of Egypt, to rescue him, to rescue them. And then they complain that he's going to let them die in the desert. But, you know, God had looked after them every day since they stepped out of Egypt. And we're not talking about a day or a year. We're talking about 40 years. It says that God made it so their clothes and their sandals didn't wear out. He led them with a pillar of fire and salt. They were dying in Egypt and he rescued them and he preserved their life for years in the desert. And so to suddenly accuse him of bringing them into the desert to die was ridiculous. He could have just left them in Egypt had he have wanted that to have been the outcome. And then they say, we have no bread. And yet the Bible says he gave them bread, he gave them manna from heaven every day and two portions on the day before the Sabbath so they didn't have to even go out and gather on that day. And then they say, we have no water. Now you can't survive a day in the desert without water. God had supplied them for 40 years. In fact, just Numbers 20, the bit below, is an incident where they cry out to God because they're running out of water 
And Moses ends up whacking the rock and water comes gushing out of a rock. You don't need a lake or a river or a tap or a plumbing system when you have a God with you who makes water flow in the desert from a rock. And finally they say they hate the food they have. God, what you're providing we don't like. It doesn't taste nice. We'd rather have some of that lovely gruel and maggots that they served us in Egypt when we lived in chains and we got beaten daily. Oh, happy day. So God has freed them from slavery. He's protected them. He's provided for them every way. Clothes, food, light, shelter. Since the first day they set foot in the desert, in the wilderness. And yet the people of God, all they could do was moan, complain, grumble, rubbish God's name for what they said he hadn't done. In short, we've got to get our heads around this. They had sinned and they had sinned big time. Somebody... Uh, wrote, their anger was expressed in resentment about their preferable past, gloomy future, and and frugal present. However, the truth was, of course, that their past in Egypt wasn't preferable at all. And their present wasn't frugal. They had all they need. And their future wasn't gloomy because they were being led by the God of the whole universe. And so what we see the Israelites exhibiting is what someone called the fearsome foursome. The fearsome foursome, not another Disney super action movie. The fearsome foursome, resentment, fear, self-absorption and guilt. That's what we see the people of God are displaying. Resentment, fear, self-absorption and guilt. So understanding that, we now got to ask the question, so why did God send the snakes? Well, the truth is that God can't leave this sin of theirs, undealt with. He can't just sweep it under the carpet. He can't pretend it didn't happen or it doesn't matter. Our sin matters to God. It must be dealt with. And it doesn't get dealt with by doing nothing. Something must be done to deal with it. God wants to bring them to their senses. He wants them to see how ridiculous, how crazy, how sinful, how ungrateful, how resentful. They are being. His heart is restoration. His heart is not vindication or retribution. But for that to happen, the Israelites must see how wrong they are. What an incredibly wrong view of God they've got. What a wrong view of their circumstances they've got. That if they carry on like this, they're going to be even further away from God in terms of their relationship with him than they are now. And so... You might think that sending snakes to bite people, some of whom die, is over the top. But the truth is that God has been patient with these people. He's spoken to them repeatedly. He's, he's demonstrated his goodness to them in abundant ways. He's warned them of the consequence of sinning. He said, don't be like this. You'll end up like all the other people in the world. And you're not like all the other people in the world because you're my people. But if you carry on sinning, you're going to be like them. And what do his people do? They just carry on. They just carry on. They just carry on. And God's got to do something because they are so stubborn. Their absolute refusal to listen. See, it's not God's hard-heartedness that causes him to send the snakes. It's their hard-heartedness. It's their sinfulness. It's their rebellion. I know this can be hard to get your head around. Sometimes people say to me things like, I don't read the Old Testament because I find God's angry in it. You know, crazy things like that. 
It's madness. We've, we've got to make sure that we don't do that. We get our heads around it. I was recently reading in the Old Testament about a pro- prophecy against Moab. It's one of a series that God gives in Isaiah. And God's talking about how he's going to destroy these peoples because of their sin, the terrible things they're doing, awful things. They're burning babies and doing other terrible, wicked things. And God eventually says, no, I'm going to destroy some of these people. And yet in Isaiah 16, verse 9 and verse 11, in the midst of God saying what he's going to do, he says this, so I weep as Jazar weeps for the vines of Sibmar. Verse 11, my heart laments for Moab like a harp, my inmost being. See, God is not rejoicing over their destruction. Even though it's at his hands, he is weeping over them. His heart is breaking for them. It's their stubbornness and rebellion, like the, like the people in the story we're reading now. And it's their sin that causes God to react accordingly with death and destruction. But it's so that they might come to their senses and they might stop and they might turn to God and they might stop their sin. And yet, while God is administering his perfect justice, his heart is breaking for them. Do you understand that? His heart is breaking for them, even as he is administering his perfect justice that has to be administered. And so the picture we have to understand this morning is of God sending death in the form of these snakes, but it's in response to the people's very great sin. And he's sending them in order to wake them up to it, to get them to realise what they're doing. And yet his heart at the same time is breaking even over what he is doing. I don't know about you, but whenever I read this kind of incident or similar incidents in the Bible about how God's people acted, about just how, how they do one thing and God says, don't do it, and they do it. And then God says, don't do it, and they do it. And God says, if you do that again, I'm going to do this. And you turn the page of your Bible and they do it. I don't know about you, but whenever I read this, I go, ah, just how stupid can you be? Just how blind can you be? Just how ungrateful can you be? How can you not see that it's God who's with you, providing everything for you? And I think, ah, and then I realize I can be exactly the same. I can be exactly the same as them. That I have been saved and freed from sin by God. Their physical Egypt was a spiritual Egypt for me. I was in slavery to sin before God rescued me. Hallelujah. And God has provided for me every single day since I became a Christian. And yet at times I can still complain. And yet at times I can still moan. And yet at times I can still be ungrateful. Sometimes I have 90% of everything that I ever needed or wanted. And yet I focus on the 10% that I think I desperately need. Somehow God's not, if God would only let me have that bit, I'd be really happy. See, I have the privilege of living in the UK. We have a health system. We have a government. We might moan about it, but it's better than most of the world. I have a home. I have a job. I have a lovely wife. I have a family. I'm a Christian. I have a church that I love and loves me. I'm saved. And yet I can moan and grumble. I was recently at a conference. I heard the story of a church leader. He was busy doing this and that for God. He was a church leader, but you can put this into whatever context you are in, business, home, whatever. But for him, he was a church leader. And and he wanted to do this thing for God. It didn't go right. And he was ranting and raving at God. Ranting and raving. I don't know if you're ranting and, God, why not this? Why not that? 
If only you'd see my way is the best way, God, surely. And God said to him, Bob, when will Jesus be enough? What question? When will Jesus be enough? And he realized that Jesus wasn't quite enough for him. And he was trying to add other things. And for him, because he led a church, it was things around church. But if you're in business, it could be something around business. If you're focused towards your kids, kids could be something around your children, whatever it may be. And sometimes I hear God say to me when I start grumbling, complaining, when I'm not focusing on who I am in him and who he is, what I don't have, I hear him say to me, Dale, when will Jesus be enough? We sang this morning that song, the cross is enough. And the cross is enough because Jesus is enough. And really that's the same root question that God was asking the Israelites. You see, they had him. And so they had everything. And yet it still wasn't enough for them. And that really was the root of their sin. God wasn't enough for them. I think there are five things that they didn't do that kind of got them into this situation. Number one, they didn't acknowledge his power. They didn't acknowledge his power. He was the one that had acted mightily to get them to where they were, out from where they had been, which was terrible, and to where they were now. Secondly, they didn't appreciate his generosity. No one had to make God choose and bless this people. God did it of his own free will and accord. And they had stopped appreciating God's generosity. Third one, they didn't recognize his mercy. That he was treating them mercifully. He treated them mercifully every day since he had freed them from Egypt. Fourth one, they'd stopped accepting his sovereignty. They stopped accepting that God was the God of the whole world and that their footsteps were in his hands, as it were. They stopped accepting his sovereignty. And fifthly, they stopped trusting his word. God had told them what the end was going to be. God had told them what would happen. And yet they stopped trusting what God had said. Five things. Acknowledge his power appreciate his generosity, recognize his mercy, accept his sovereignty, and trust his word. And the truth is, if I fail to constantly remind myself of those things, then I can become resentful, fearful, self-absorbed, and self-centered in on my own life. If I forget those five things, then I find those four things, those four terrible things kind of coming out in my life. And you know what? Sometimes God has to send spiritual snakes to bite me and wake me up. And I don't like them. I don't like it when God sends one of those snakes to come and bite me. But you know, I thank God for them because otherwise I'd end up in the same place that the Israelites were. And if God hadn't sent them to them, they would have ended up in the same place that the peoples who weren't the people of God ended up in, miles away from God. So that's the first point. That's what I think uh, we need to learn when we're looking at this snake wilderness thing. But let's move on. So the verse says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up. So now we've got a better understanding of what Jesus was referring to when he said about Moses lifting up the snakes in the wilderness. Let's go on to see what he's comparing that to. And what we find is that Jesus is referring it to himself being lifted up, the son of man being lifted up. 
And the commentaries kind of agree that this term lifted up that Jesus used is this is kind of ambiguous. He could have used a number of other phrases, but he uses this one. And it definitely refers to his crucifixion, but it also can refer to his exaltation. So I think that actually Jesus wants us to have a bit of a broader picture in our mind than simply the crucifixion when he uses this verse. I think there are three things, really, if you like, three times Jesus is lifted up that he wants us to have in mind. Firstly, most importantly, and definitely on the cross. As I've said, the next verse in, is the most famous one in the Bible about how God gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but will be saved. And later on in John 12, verse 32, Jesus uses this same phrase when he says this, And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. So Jesus definitely got in mind his crucifixion. But also I think the second time Jesus, if you like, was lifted up was when he was raised back to life. His resurrection from the tomb, never to die again at the hands of his father, lifted up so that our sin might be forgiven once and for all. This lifting up of all lifting ups. I think that should be in the back of our mind. And then thirdly, we see the lifting up when Jesus ascended back to heaven, literally raised back to God's right-hand side, back from where he came, ruling, reigning, right now, interceding for us. Acts 1 verse 9 describes the moment. After he said this, he was taken up. The NASB says he was lifted up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. And so we get this sense Jesus was lifted up on the cross giving victory over sin and our past. Jesus was lifted up from the grave, giving victory over death, and he reigns in our present. And Jesus was lifted to heaven, which gives victory over our eternal predicament, and our futures are now in his hands. For a Christian, heaven is our destiny, not hell. So what can Moses and this snake incident teach us about Jesus being lifted up? Well, you see, God got Moses to lift up a bronze image of the snake when the snake was the means of destruction. And I'm sure the Israelites would have thought that strange. But I think God is making a deliberate point. I think God wanted to underline to them and to us that it was at his hand that death and destruction came and that it's going to be at his hand that healing and salvation will come. And therefore he got Moses to make an image of a snake for people to look at as the means of healing, even though it was the cause of the bite and the death, because neither were the fault of the snakes. They were just the agents used by God. It's like God reminding them, he's underlining the point, I sent judgment and I will send salvation. The snake is irrelevant, this was at my doing. However, I think there is also a point here, that it's the same type as caused the issue would bring the healing. So a snake bite caused the problem and so a snake was used as part of the healing. Just compare that for a moment to Jesus being lifted up on a cross and we get to understand that mankind was the problem. It was mankind's rebellion and sin which caused God to act and so man, a man had to come and be the answer. 
Which is why Jesus refers to himself as he often did, but specifically did here as the son of man. He's pointing to his humanity in this moment, not expressly his divinity. And so Jesus was and had to be fully man on the cross to fully represent humankind in that moment. But of course, you and I wonderfully know that he also had to be and was fully God. Because just as the healing didn't come from the snake, but from God, as the people looked to the snake. So salvation has to come from God as we look and grasp the significance of the sacrifice of God sending his son to die on the cross. The difference, however, was that the bronze snake didn't actually do anything. Whereas Jesus was actually paying the price to obtain something. And that something was the forgiveness for the sins of you and me. I recently read that the essence of the gospel is God saving us from God. I'd never really thought about it like that. Because I'm stupid. I'd never really thought that the essence of the gospel is God saving us from God. But I think that's what Jesus kind of is helping us to understand by pointing to this incident with Moses and the snake. See, Jesus dying on the cross was God acting to save us from his wrath because of our sin. Jesus dying on the cross was God acting to save us from his own wrath caused by our sin and rebellion. God rightly did something to address our sin. And then he did something else to rescue us from what he did to address our sin. Do you understand? God sent the snake to address their sin. And then when they realized he made a way for them to be healed by having Moses put the thing nailed to a piece of wood. And then anybody who looked at it would be healed. See, remember, once God responded to Moses' request, when Moses said, God, let me see your face. Do you remember God said, okay, but he put him in the cleft of a rock. And he passed Moses by, but he put his own hand in front of Moses so that Moses wouldn't be destroyed because no one could look upon God and not be destroyed. God's hand saved Moses from being destroyed by God as he passed him by. God saved Moses from God. Faced with two seemingly opposing options, we would choose one. That's what we would choose, because we're human. I have two opposing options, I can only choose one. But you know, in terms of salvation, God does both, so that his justice and his mercy get exercised at the same time. See, not to punish sin means God is not just, and so he had to send the snakes to wake the Israelites up to it. But not to provide a way out meant God would have not been merciful, And so he told Moses to lift up the snake and to provide a way out. Not to punish sins means God wouldn't be just. And so he sent Jesus to pay the price and the penalty for our sin. But not to provide a way out means God wouldn't have been merciful and therefore God lifted up Jesus on the cross and he lifted him from the tomb and he lifted him to heaven that you and I might have a way out, a way of healing, a way of salvation if we will look to him. God has saved us from God, through God. And Jesus, I think, is helping us to understand the full significance of him being lifted up as he points to this incident with Moses and the snake. And he's saying that God is going to bring healing and salvation for people through him, just like God brought healing and salvation for the Israelites through that snake. 
Jesus saying, just as that snake was nailed to a piece of wood and lifted up, and as people looked at it, so I acted and moved. So I am going to be lifted up. And if men and women will look to me, so my Father God will forgive their sins and I will heal them. That's why Jesus then goes on. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. So Jesus finishes by making this offer, this offer and a promise that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Everyone that believes puts their faith in Jesus being lifted up, just like I've described, acknowledging that it's our sin that is the problem, will have eternal life. And when Jesus says your eternal life, he doesn't mean live forever. He means, he means, because he defines eternal life himself. He says eternal life is those who know God through me. That's what he's saying. And it starts the day that you become a Christian. And it carries on every single day. And one day you stop breathing here on earth and you go to be with me in heaven and you carry on. There's not a break in the chain. So if you're not a Christian here this morning, then please know that salvation and eternal life is available, but it comes only from Jesus. And that if you're not a Christian, then your sins remain undealt with. They're not dealt with. Your sin, your rebellion to God is a matter which is there, but it is undealt with. And it really is the biggest problem in your life right now. You may think that work, debt, whatever, not getting on in life, you may think that you have a number of problems in life. Your biggest problem is the one of sin because it's undealt with. But the offer of forgiveness and relationship with God through Jesus remains on the table. It's an offer. It's there. It's it's there for you. But the question is, is will you have the humility and the courage to take it? See, putting it into the context of the story that we've been looking at today. If you're not a Christian here this morning, let me tell you, the snake of sin has bitten you. It has bitten you. The poison is in your bloodstream. It was in my bloodstream from the moment that I was born. That's how it is. Death will come one day. And our only hope is to look to Jesus lifted up on that cross. But only we can decide if we're going to look to him. See, the Israelites in this story, they weren't automatically healed. They weren't automatically healed. Even when Moses made the snake and put it on the cross, they weren't automatically healed. To be healed, the Bible is clear, they had to look. In other words, they had to put their faith in God. They had to put their faith in God by looking to what God had told Moses to do. And you will only be saved if you put your faith in God by looking to what he has done through his son, living a perfect life and then dying a horrendous death on the cross. My encouragement, my urge, my plea to you if you are not a Christian here this morning is to have the courage, have the humility, bow the knee, put your faith in Jesus Christ. I did it as a 14-year-old boy. He has never left me from that day to this day. I'm confident he will never leave me from this day until the day I stop breathing. I'm then confident that on that day I will go and be with him in heaven and I will live with him forever. If you're a Christian here today, then again, can I encourage you, let's not be like those grumbling, complaining Israelites. Let's not, let's not walk down that road when we are the spiritually richest people on the earth. Let's live our lives lifted up to Jesus. What he's done, he's defeated our past. 
What he's doing right now, he's defining our present. What he's prepared for us, he's already determined our eternal destiny. If you're a Christian, you can't lose. You cannot, you're like England playing Italy today. Dangerous words, I know. Uh, I feel confident. Just think about those five things. Because I do it, I don't know whether you do it, but I can at times forget to acknowledge his power. I tend to look to everything else myself. Last option, prayer. Let's not be like that. Let's acknowledge his power. Let's appreciate his generosity. Everything you have, which is good, comes from God. Read John 3 if you don't believe me. Everything good that you and I have comes from God. So let's appreciate his generosity. Let's recognize his mercy. How about this one? He didn't need to save you and me. We weren't that special. We weren't that good. I love you, but you're not that special. None of us, none of us, either before we were saved or after we were saved, none of us have lived lives that deserve the Son of God to hang on the cross for us. So let's just recognize his mercy. Let's accept his sovereignty. The Israelites were in a much better place than they had been in Jesus, but they weren't in paradise. But you know that in the sovereignty of God, they were, they were where, the, where they were. They were. We just need to accept his sovereignty. God does know better. I know we think, particularly men, I'm talking to men here particularly, we think we know best. We think we know. We don't know. God knows. God knows best. Let's accept his sovereignty. And finally, let's trust his word. Let's trust his word. If he said it, it will be. It's in his word, it will be. So this morning we've been looking at God who's very willing and very able to lift up. Whether it's a snake for healing or a son for salvation. But I thought I'd leave the last word to the psalmist who uses this little phrase. In Psalm 40 he says this, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on a rock, gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Amen.